Tabernacles was uh, one of the three major Jewish feasts that took place up in Jerusalem that all men had to attend every single year. Um, So Jesus, being a law-abiding Israelite, went up to Jerusalem. So um, he was up there in the Feast of Tabernacles teaching. In chapter 8 this week, the context is still the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you've been paying attention, you may have noticed that we skipped over verses 1 through 11. You may be wondering, why? Why do we do that? I thought Ulysses preaches expositionally, and we don't skip over anything. No hard parts, no nothing. That's true. We don't. We are going straight through the book of John. But verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8 actually, probably, most likely is not actually a part of the Bible. Now, it is a wonderful story, a story about um, a woman who was caught in adultery. Uh, It's a story about forgiveness. It's a story about legalism, the legalism of the religious leaders that wanted to judge her, but weren't looking, willing to look at their own sin. It was a story that reminds us about the ubiquitous nature of sin in all humanity. So it is a wonderful story. It is something that very likely did actually take place, but was added into the Gospel of John later on. So I think there is much that we can learn from it. It definitely is in accord with the rest of the teaching of Scripture, but because it is not actually a part of the Bible, it is not within the earliest and best manuscripts, copies of the Gospel of John that we have, we are going to skip over that. And if you've been reading Why Trust the Bible in community group, this is a great passage. If you'd like to do a little bit of extra credit to dive into and to look into the whole history of textual criticism and transmission and uh, manuscripts and all that kind of stuff, it's fascinating stuff. But verses, um, John chapter 7, verse 53 until chapter 8, verse 11, most likely was not in the scriptures in the original Gospel of John. So we are going to jump down to chapter 8, verse 12, which actually flows very nicely because in chapter 7, Jesus was conversing with the religious leaders and the crowds um, as he was teaching in the Feast of Tabernacles. And here in verse 12, the teaching continues. So I'm going to read here verse 12 down to 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from, where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself 
Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Amen. This is, this is the word of God. Um, today, what I am going to be doing is I'm going to be spending the majority of this message on verse 12 alone. Just this one verse out of these 19 verses. This is going to be at least half the message, maybe 60-40, 70-30, something like that. This is going to be the focus. Um, and the reason for that being is, is I, I think Jesus' statement here is so profound and amazing. And then what happens after verse 12 is the Pharisees begin to criticize him and object about him bearing witness to himself. And Jesus and the Pharisees end up in a dialogue going back and forth up until verse 30 and actually on through the rest of the chapter as well. But so there's kind of like a detour that happens there in verses 13 to 30. Um, but Jesus' main teaching here is on verse 12. Now, 13 through 30 is also related as well and definitely has a lot to do with Jesus' teaching about being the light here. But that's the way we're going to break it down here. We're going to look mainly at his teaching in verse 12 and then at this detour that the Pharisees kind of take us on um, in the, the rest of the passage. So here, again, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, this is an amazing statement from Jesus. This is the second of his famous I am statements here in the book of John. Now, I mentioned earlier, in the book of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes. This is the second one. The first one was earlier in chapter 6 when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now here Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Why were there seven? Because seven is a number that was associated with perfection, with completeness. God created the heavens and the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Israelites also were supposed to rest on the seventh day in observance of all of God's work as well. It was a number that came to signify completeness and perfection. And John uses it in his gospel. Jesus says, I am seven times. He is the perfect son of God. He said, I am the bread of life, meaning he is the one who gives true spiritual nourishment to this world. And now here in chapter eight, he's saying, I am the light of the world. Now, to give context to this, we have to understand, again, he is here at the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a lot of tradition, a lot of ceremony that took place 
at the Feast of Tabernacles every year when all the Jews gathered together there. Um, in chapter 7, we saw that there was a water pouring ceremony that took place. They poured water out into a basin near the altar to symbolize, to symbolize how God had provided water for the Israelites in the wilderness, how he was the source of their life. And Jesus stood up and he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and, and rivers of living water will flow out from his heart. So there was symbolism that they performed when they were there in the Feast of Tabernacles that was meant to point to a greater spiritual reality. Ceremonies have been a part of mankind ever since the very beginning. Our, our cultures are filled with ceremony. Our church is filled with ceremony. When we take the bread and the cup, when we celebrate communion, it is a ceremony. We are remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. Um, it is a physical act that has a deeper spiritual significance. And as we partake in that ceremony, we believe God will bless us. Uh, weddings. Weddings are ceremonies. How come weddings are all over the world in every culture that you go to? Why don't we just say, hey, I love you. You love me. Let's just be committed to each other for the rest of our lives. Why can't we just do that? Why are there weddings everywhere you go all around the world? Because ceremony is an important part of life and it's a part of how God has made us as well. One other ceremony that took place here during the Feast of Tabernacles was the lighting of the lampstands. Now, this was something that took place uh, that was really a spectacle. There would be these four huge lamps that basically looked like menorah, that looked like menorah. If, you, if you've seen the, the Jewish candles that they use, um, uh, back in the Feast of Tabernacles, they had seven different candles coming out of one stem. So six coming out and then one in the middle. And they made these four lampstands that were about uh, 75 feet tall, some people say. They were huge. They were massive. And they would be lit up during each night of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this would take place in one of the courts of the temple called the Court of the Women. And each one of these four lamps had a large bowl filled with oil that would feed all the wicks and that would keep the candles burning throughout the night. And uh, the different sons, uh, different boys of the priestly families would run up and down ladders attached to these lights in order to go and fill these bowls over and over again. Here is a a artist rendition of what it might have looked like. I know it's difficult to see on our projector and with this lighting, but that's the court of the women. It's the, it looks like the largest court. So much activity happened there. So many people were there and those lights uh, coming from the four corners were these huge, tall, tall lamps that were shining so brightly. Now, the reason that they, they made these 75 feet tall lamps and, and lit them up all night was to remind them of God's pillar of cloud and pillar of fire in the desert. Now, if you, the Feast of Tabernacles, we have to remember, is a commemoration, is a remembrance of how God provided for the people of Israel for those 40 years when they were in the wilderness. This is why it's also called the Feast of Booths. So people would grab um, palm fronds and big leaves, and they would basically like go camping. <laughs> they would make these little tents and the people would live in these tents during these feasts to remind them, we used to live out in the desert for 40 years. God was watching over us. God 
protected us. And every night of those 40 years, there was a huge pillar of fire there. During the day, it was a pillar of cloud. You ever think about this? How do you survive in the desert? Desert in the Middle East for 40 years. You cannot. You will get heat stroke. You will die of heat. It is so hot out there. But God, in a pillar of cloud, provided a canopy, a covering over the people of Israel. If you've ever been out on a hike on a really hot day and you're sweating and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so hot, and then a cloud rolls in and it cools everybody down, they had a cloud for 40 years, keeping them cool in the wilderness. In the desert at night, if any of you live in a desert environment, it's so hot in the day and then it plunges to freezing cold temperatures at night. How do you survive in that? Out in tents, out in the desert for 40 years. God was there in a pillar of fire. This pillar of fire brought warmth to the camp, and it also brought light for them. It guided them. They could even follow the pillar as it was walking. As they were walking, as the pillar was moving in the darkness, they could follow it to where God was leading them. So they created these 75 feet tall lamps to remind them of this pillar of fire that God used to give them light while they were there in the wilderness. And and I, I, this, is, this is interesting because in verse 20 that I just read from this passage, it says that Jesus was teaching in the treasury. He was in the treasury when he was doing this teaching. And the treasury is located in the court of the women. So this is where Jesus was when he was doing this teaching. This is where he was when he was saying, I am the light of the world. Now, this is the context. And I, and I think that there is a connection here. And I think most scholars would agree that that what Jesus is saying to the people is that I am the true light of this world. That's me. That's me. By the time Jesus said this, they may not have been lighting the lights anymore. It It was the end of the feast that was out there. But imagine, I think that's powerful as well, that they had these lights there. They were no longer there. And Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, anybody who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If if this is the case, and I believe that this is, there is a striking, striking succession of events here happening in John chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. Three incredible images of God's provision in the wilderness. In chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the true manna. What was manna? How God provided for the people in the wilderness. How he gave them bread for 40 years. In chapter 7, Jesus said, I am the living water. Come to me and drink. And when they poured out the water in the water pouring ceremony at the temple in chapter 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles, it symbolized God's provision of water for them in the desert. And Jesus saying, I am the source of true water. I am the true source of, of everybody's, of how your thirst can be quenched. Come to me and drink. And in chapter 8, he's saying here, I am the light of the world. I am the pillar of fire that provided light for your forefathers out in the wilderness. Everything that the Feast of Tabernacles represents, being in the wilderness, God's provision, Jesus is saying, it all points to me. It points to me. John is masterfully, masterfully describing how Jesus 
fulfills that saying when he said, all the law and the prophets pointed forward to me. I am the fulfillment of all of this. It's beautiful what Jesus is saying here. So when he says, I am the light of the world, what does that mean? What does that mean? There, there are a couple of really important ramifications of this. When he says, I am the light of the world, one really important consequence of this is that there is no other light in this world. That's, that's the consequence of this. That's the end result. He says, I am the light of the world. That means there is no other light in this world. No other light. He doesn't leave room for that. No other Religion is the light of this world. Atheistic rationality is not the light of this world. Worldly philosophies are not of this world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. There is no other light in this world. Now, that that doesn't mean that other worldly systems or philosophies never espouse the truth or never touch upon anything that is true or that's real. But what it does mean is that when, it, when they do so, when other religions or worldly systems or philosophies, when they say something that is true, that what they're doing is they are reflecting in a dimmer way the light that comes from Jesus, the light that comes from God. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that they never say anything that's true, but that light that they give is a reflection of the light that comes from God in a dimmer, incomplete way. For example, um, an atheist can say, I I think every atheist would believe that there is such a thing as right or wrong. Like, you know, it's never okay for me to come up to you and punch you in the face just because I think you look silly the way way your head cocks back when I punch you. And and I think it's hilarious. It's never okay. It's never okay. It's wrong. It's wrong. I think... People who don't believe in God, if you're an atheist, you believe that there is morality. There is a system of right and wrong. And where does that come from? If there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver as well. It's true. I should never punch you for fun. That's not good. That's evil. That's wrong. But that's a true statement. But why is it true? Why is it true? Because there is a moral law giver. There is a God who has told us what is right and what is wrong. Some people may want to argue, well, that's just humankind. We made that up. That's just a social construct, right and wrong. It's just for the sake of preserving our society so that we don't just kill each other and and are wringing each other's necks. Well, if that's really, really true, then then we should just, we should take that argument to to the fullest extent possible. If it's all about survival of the fittest, let's just screen everybody genetically and euthanize all the weak people, all the people with bad genes. Ulysses, you're nearsighted. Eh, you're out, right? Let's, let's call all the bad genes from our society for the sake of humankind so that we could become a more a stronger species of people so that we'll be smarter, we'll be faster, we'll be, we'll be stronger, all those things. Should we do that? I, I don't, you know, I'm sure that even if you don't believe in God, you would say, no, we shouldn't do that. That's wrong. How can we do that? Why? There's no answer to that unless you can say, because we're made in the image of God. Because we're different. Because God made us like him 
in his image. And because of that, every human being is infinitely valuable of, of, of such infinite worth because God has made us. God has made us. And that's why we do not go and hurt other people. That's why we don't go and, and take out all the weak in our society. You see, people believe that, that that would be wrong. But that is the light that comes from God. But they cannot give a reason for it. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it so beautifully. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. What C.S. Lewis is saying is, is, is that, you know, it, it's, it's through belief in God that actually everything else in the world makes sense, whether it's morality or art and beauty or, or the, the, the laws of the, the universe, the physics, all of those things, all of those only make sense in the light of a creator, God. The whole world needs this light. Jesus said, this is the light of life. This is not an optional light, friends. It's the light of life. It's not like the, the, the flashlight in, in, your, in your phone. This is not like your high beams that you only use once in a while. Jesus said that he is the light of life. And if we want to live life well, in the way that it was meant to be lived, we need the light of God. We need the light of the world. He says that anybody who does not follow him walks in darkness. Walks in darkness. What does it mean to walk in darkness? A couple things. One, it means you don't know where you're going. You don't know where you're going. You know, we take it for granted how important light is. But if you, could you, if everybody, could you close your eyes for one second? Those of you at home too, close your eyes. Just close your eyes. Do a thought experiment. Imagine this. Imagine I said to you now, okay, everybody, with your eyes closed, get to your car. That's something that might've taken you two minutes to do before. Now you're like, okay, I got to stand up, feel for the chair in front of me slide to my right. To like, let's go for the patio. Let's go for the patio. Feel the wall, get to an open door, then hug the building wall. I got to get around that fence somehow. Okay, we're going to go around that fence. There are bushes there, ah, spider webs, but what can I do? And then you turn the corner, you get down to the other corner, you know, go, okay, I'm in the parking lot. Now what am I going to do? How am I going to get to my car? Oh, I know. I'm going I'm to use my car alarm buzzer thing until you realize all 200 of you are doing the same thing. And now... Now you can't hear anything, especially now the electric cars coming at you that are going to take you out, the silent killers, right? But let's say somehow you get to your car, congratulations, good job, and now drive home with your eyes closed, right? You can't do it. You can open your eyes now. You can open your eyes. Thank you. Some of you guys opened your eyes way earlier. You're like, I'm done with this. Um, What does it mean to walk in the darkness? It means we stumble. We don't know where we're going. We can't see things that are tripping us up. We don't know what direction that we're heading in. This is what Jesus said it's like without his life, without his light in our lives. Without the light of God, the light of the world, it is like stumbling around in darkness. Now, some people may say, well, I don't feel like I'm stumbling around in darkness. I I have career goals. I have life goals. Uh, You know, I I love my family. I, I have many ambitions in life. 
But the reality is, any type of life that is lived without the light of Jesus is a life that is lived apart from our Creator, apart from the very purpose and meaning for which we were created. And that is a life that is living in darkness. Friends, that is not living, that is existing. To truly live means to live in connection with our Heavenly Father, to know why we were made, to walk in relationship with Him, and that comes by walking in the light that Jesus provides. Walking in the dark means we don't know where we're going. Walking in darkness also is something that we often actually just like to do. What do you mean? Why would I like to walk around in the darkness? Because when we come to the light of Jesus, it means that this light will shine into our lives and it will reveal what is sinful and displeasing to God and what is holy and what is pleasing to God. And oftentimes we don't like that. Sin loves darkness. We prefer the darkness. Earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus said that light can... Whoa. I can't sing right now. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The reality is, the sinfulness of our human hearts causes us to like the darkness. Why? Because darkness hides our sin. And the closer that we get to Jesus, the closer that we get to the light, the light reveals what is sin, the light reveals what is holy, the light reveals what is displeasing to God, and the light reveals what is pleasing to God. But oftentimes we don't want to let go of the things that are darkness, the things that our flesh desires and craves. So we'd prefer to stay in the dark. This is why clubs and bars are oftentimes dimly lit so that the darkness hides the imperfections of our skin, the, 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 our scars, our, our, our acne, the imperfections, whatever it might be. When you turn that light on, that hospital-grade light, everything is seen so clearly. We don't like that. We don't like that. We prefer to keep the lights dim. As Christians, we often prefer that too, don't we? Sometimes there are certain things there are certain things, sins in our lives that we don't want to bring to God. We don't want to bring into the light because we'd rather not let go of them. We want to hold on to those things. So what do we do? We, we justify ourselves. We don't share with our brothers and sisters. We don't seek accountability. We make excuses. We say, that's not so bad. Look at that person over there. Or God will understand. He'll forgive me. Or we just ignore it. We ignore it because we want to stay in the darkness. That's what happens. But when Jesus has come into the light, our sin is revealed. But that is the gracious, gracious mercy of God. It's like finding out that you have cancer. It's not pleasant. But if you can catch it early stage, it can save your life. Like my mother-in-law. It wasn't pleasant for her to find out that she had kidney cancer. But thank God we did the test. Thank God we found out the results of everything because it was early stage. And hopefully it's treatable. And hopefully she will be just fine. 
When we come into the light, when we're willing to do that and we're willing to say, God, here's my heart, here's everything, God, completely exposed before you, God might say, that's got to go. That needs to change in your life. But it is the blessing and grace of an early cancer diagnosis because sin separates us from God. Sin can lead us down the wrong path, the path of death, and can ultimately kill us and destroy our relationship with God. That's what it means to walk in the darkness. So what do we do, friends? How do we walk in the light? A few things, a few quick things here. How do we walk in the light? First, believe. Believe in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, the way that you begin to walk in this amazing light that God has provided for us is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died upon the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven because you could never ascertain, you could never gain your own forgiveness. But if you believe in him, that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead, proving that he is God, your sins will be forgiven and you will be reunited in relationship with God the Father. The first step is to believe. That's how you begin to walk in the light. Secondly, meditate on the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How do we, how do we walk in this light of God? When, when you become a Christian, do you suddenly know everything? Is everything suddenly illuminated? You know what is sin and you know what is holy? No, the word of God is something that he has given to us to be a lamp to my feet. And when you read the Bible, when you meditate upon God's truth, when you internalize it, what you're doing is you are beginning to think God's thoughts after him. You are being transformed into the likeness of God. You begin to think like God. You begin to evaluate things like God. What happens is your your eyes become like flashlights. And when you, when you look into the world around you, when you look into society, when you look into your own heart, you begin to recognize what is darkness and what is light through the word of God. You may start to recognize that business deal is kind of shady. Maybe I shouldn't do it. Whereas before, you may have thought that's not such a big deal. You may start realizing, oh, culture is shifting in an ungodly direction, and I shouldn't just go with that. I should resist that. You might recognize when you should speak up or when you should opt out, even at great personal cost. You will recognize the nuances and the subtleties of your heart. As it says in the Word of God, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We can, as we begin to use the Word of God to judge and to analyze our hearts. We meditate on God's Word to bring light into our lives. Thirdly, we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Like chapter 7 said, Jesus said, if you come to me and drink, the Holy Spirit, rivers of living water will flow out of your heart, and this describes the Holy Spirit within your life. So when you believe in God, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within your heart and begins to give you guidance to lead you and give you the wisdom of God. So as you pray and you say, God, would you guide me? Help me to know what pleases you, what is light and what is darkness. As you pray, the Holy Spirit within you guides you and leads you and gives you wisdom that you would not have had 
apart from the Holy Spirit. Fourth, walking in the light means also receiving comfort, comfort from the light, even when you are in the darkness. You see, when, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that this light, this world suddenly becomes completely filled with light and there's no more darkness in it. No, as the psalmist said, that we still walk through the valley of the shadow of death at times, even if we're following Jesus. In fact, Jesus may lead us through that valley of the shadow of death. That's why we're there, because we're following him. But that light of God can help us in those times of deep, deep darkness. Whether it's in the face of devastating loss and knowing that the light of God is still there. It looks so dark around you, but God is like, like that nightlight there. Maybe it seems dim at times, but that light is there. Maybe when the stress that you're facing in your life feels like more than you can handle, you can look to the light and know that God is there. When you're struggling with, with, with infertility or you've had a miscarriage, again, the light of God is with you in those times of pain and sorrow. In Isaiah, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The world in which we live is filled with darkness, but God's light gives us comfort. You know, like, I, not much makes me sad. I am a very, very optimistic person. I think it drives my wife crazy because sometimes she wants me to be sad with her about things, but I always see like, all, most of the time, I see the silver lining in things. I'm a really, really positive thing, a person, positive thinker. Um, that's just the way that I am. But one thing that makes me sad every time I think about it is my mother and her 10-year-long struggle with Parkinson's. And, and she passed away almost a year ago. She's coming up one-year anniversary, December 15th. But, you know, the thing that makes me so sad is that my mother, she worked for 30 years in the post office here. Worked so hard. She, my dad worked a daytime shift. My mother worked a graveyard shift. Just so somebody's kind of like always home around with me and my brother, although we were latchkey kids at times. And, uh, you know, uh, but anyways, uh, they did their best. And she worked for like 30 years, working hard. And, and, but she had so much life and activity within her. She wanted to do so many things. And, and she, her goal was once she retired, she'd be able to do all those things. So when she retired, she went to the local community center. She started learning how to do the, the interwebs type thing, right? And she took a photography class and she took all these different things and she just wanted to do all of these things now that she was finally retired. But then she got a Parkinson's diagnosis and she got maybe two or three years of healthy living. But then she began to fall and I would get calls. Your mother is, is on the street and there's the EMT here and she has a gash on her head because she fell because Parkinson's affected her mobility. Eventually, those falls got worse and worse, and she started breaking bones. She broke her hip and had to have hip replacement surgery. She broke her sacrum. She factored her sacrum, and then she could no longer use the restroom properly. She had to have a catheter in. Eventually, she, her hands were shaking, and she couldn't write anymore, but she loved to journal. She had journals that, that looked like a small library. She would journal so much. She couldn't do that anymore. Eventually, she had to use a walker, and then a wheelchair, and then she became bedbound. And I saw her, and one of the darkest times was when, when she was here, and I took her to see her neurologist. And we were waiting in the waiting room to, for her neurologist to come in. 
And my mom, she turns over to me and she says, Ulysses, she says, can you ask the neurologist for me about um, uh, euthanization, about being euthanized? And I remember that moment, I was like, I was like, I was, that was just like one of the darkest moments. And I was like, mom, you know, like I was trying to encourage her, but I was like, that's how you feel about your life right now, that you would rather your life end. And I, and I was, I was like, man, this is so, so dark. And I looked at her and I just, when I saw her, I felt, I felt how, I, I felt so sad about all the things that she would not be able to do. But in the midst of that sadness, you know, I had, I had a light. I had a hope. That hope for me was that my mother, thank the Lord, put her faith in Christ, put her faith in Jesus during her sickness. And, and now she is with the Lord, no longer in physical pain and suffering. And when Jesus returns, she will have a new glorified body and she will have eternity to do whatever it is God would have her do. And I know she's going to feel like she didn't miss a thing. That's my hope. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death with her for those 10 years of Parkinson's, that's my hope. Christ provides the light for us in the midst of this darkness. In fact, in Revelation, in a picture of what it will be like in this new heavens and a new earth, John wrote, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. It will be a place of no darkness because God will be our light. God, the light of Christ, gives us hope even when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And lastly, he calls us to take that light that we have and reflect it to others in this world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. You are the light. We are like the, the bronze, gates, bronze gate of the temple or the white walls of the temple reflecting the incredible light of those four candelabras, four menorahs. And, and they would say that that light shone from the temple throughout the entire city of Jerusalem so that courtyards would be illuminated by the glow coming from the temple. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That is who we are when we have the light of Christ within us. Brothers and sisters, it is a wonderful, beautiful light that God calls us into. The other, well, I'm going to make it fast here. Oh, my goodness, it keeps doing this. I don't know why. Um, in verse 13, the Pharisees said, they, they hear this beautiful, amazing teaching. And what do they say to him? They say, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They were harping on Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus basically says to them, you know, I don't need a witness in order for me to bear witness about myself. That doesn't apply to me. Why? Because he is the light. You know, if, if you told me I work in, I don't know, I work in Google, I could say, prove it to me. And you could say, oh, here's my badge that I always have on my belt, by the way, so Silicon Valley. 
Oh, that proves it. You could say to me, oh, I went to Santa Clara University. I could say, prove it to me. You say, oh, well, here's my diploma or here's a transcript that I went there. Jesus doesn't need to prove anything because he's the light. If you said to light, light, prove to me that you are light, light would laugh at you. <laughs> Life would say, light would say, I don't need to prove anything to you. I am the light. If you can't see that, you're blind. One theologian said this, light, in a sense, bears witness to itself. Though every other object in the world requires light in order to bear witness to itself, light always illuminates, is never illuminated. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the light. I don't need anybody else to bear witness. But, but, if you want to play that game, my father is the witness. Next slide. I don't know if I should press it or... Okay, I'll try. No, okay. Um, Jesus said, my father is my witness, God the Father. They said, where is your father? Where is he? And Jesus said, if you knew me, you would know my father also. What is he saying? He's saying, my father is my, if you knew who I, if you could really see, if you weren't so blinded, you would see that I am the perfect representation of the father, the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews says. As Jesus, later in John 14, said to Philip, Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you see Jesus, if you're not blinded to that, you recognize he is the very God of very God. That is who he is. Now, Jesus um, goes on and he says something that's familiar to us from an earlier chapter. He talks about going away. He's talking about going after he dies, after he's resurrected, he will ascend to the Father in heaven and they will not be able to follow him. They're thinking from a worldly point of view, they don't understand what he's saying. They're saying, is he going to kill himself? Is that Because that's the only way I can think of that. I can't follow him or, or be where he is. They're not understanding that Jesus is talking in a spiritual perspective. But he's saying, look, if you don't believe in me, if you don't receive my light, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Now, I had said that if we don't receive the light of Jesus, we walk in darkness. Now, people may walk in darkness in this world and feel like they're very happy because they're satisfying the desires of their flesh, their sinful nature, they have money, they have family, they have friends, they don't need Jesus. They may feel like the dark is, is good. They don't want to come into the light. But eventually, that darkness leads to death. And it leads to a greater form of darkness. One, you know, you can live in this life and take advantage of the light that is reflected off of Jesus. You know, we live in this world and we should be good to each other. We should care for others. We can have a, a world that seems okay and even enjoyable in some ways. That's only because of what we call the common grace of God. That is light that comes from God being reflected in different ways. People realizing certain truths but not knowing where it comes from. But if you keep walking in darkness, one day you will die in your sin and that light that is reflected will completely go out. It will be gone. 
Every bit of life, that, light that you enjoy in this world because of God, meaning that you are intrinsically valuable because you're creating the image of God, morality, all these things that you take for granted, the light from that will disappear. It will go completely dark. At times, if you think this world is dark now, the light will completely go out. Jesus described this eternity without God. It's described as hell. It's described in a parable here as outer darkness. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, if you die without Christ, you will die in your sin because there is no way for your sin to be forgiven. Jesus is the only light of this world. There will not come another Savior for your sin. You cannot forgive yourself. You cannot earn your forgiveness. Without Jesus, you will die in your sin and the lights will go completely dark. And you do not want to be in that place of outer darkness. Jesus says, come to the light while you still have time. And that's what he offers here. At the end of this passage, Jesus says to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. What is He saying here? Jesus says, when I am crucified, that's what being lifted up means. John chapter 3, lifted up like the, like the serpent on the bronze pole in the desert. When He is lifted up, when He's crucified on the cross, then you will know that I am He that he is God. Now, Jesus isn't saying that when he was crucified, everybody was going to believe that he's the son of God. Certainly many people didn't believe in that. Many people still were trying to crush the church and persecute the church. But, but what Jesus is saying is that you, the only way that you can come to know that he is the light of the world, that he is the son of God, is actually in light of the cross, through the cross, through reflecting on the meaning of the cross, what it means, and receiving the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ into your own life. That is the only way. Friends, the cross, it is, it is the ultimate in, in, in contradictions. It is the place where the, the judgment of God meets the love of God. Judgment that was supposed to come upon us instead in the, through the love of God came upon Jesus for all who would believe in him. And it is also the place where light and darkness meet. It is the, the darkness of sin that led Jesus to go to the cross to remove the effects of the darkness from our hearts and our minds and our lives in order to bring in the light of the glory of the Son of God through faith in him, through what he has done upon the cross. And he says, it says here, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Friends, will you, if you're not a Christian, and by Christian, I don't mean you just, you just have gone to church. If you, if you go into a garage, you're not a car, right? A church building doesn't make you a Christian. No more than a garage makes you a car. Faith in Jesus, coming to him, believing that he is the light, and following him. That's what makes you a Christian. If you have not done that, Jesus invites you. He says, whoever comes to me, 
will walk in the light of life. Whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. I will never cast out. You can have this light of God in your life. And I hope that you would. Christians, brothers and sisters, how will you respond to the light today? Do you need comfort to know that the light of God is there in the midst of whatever valley of the shadow of death you're walking through? Ask God to help you to see his light. Are you keeping parts of your heart in darkness away from God? Are you nursing that cancer diagnosis of sin? Trust in the love of God to bring your heart into the light, to let it be exposed by the light of God so that your heart can be cleansed and that you can walk with him. Let's stand together and invite the worship team up at this time.